Hey, listeners, before we get to this episode of Problem Solvers, here is a word from our sponsor. Where do you go when you want to create, manage, and grow your business online? Wix, the leading website creation platform. Create a site with designer-made templates that can be customized for your business and looks great on all devices. Reach new audiences with intelligent SEO tools designed to get you found on search engines and manage it all from one place, at home, at the office, or on the go. You'll never miss a thing when it comes to your business. So join over 200 million people already doing it and head over to Wix.com to get started. And now, on with the show. From Entrepreneur Media, this is Problem Solvers, a show in which entrepreneurs do what entrepreneurs do best, solve unexpected problems in their business. We were completely wrong. And I'm just like, it's not selling. It was like, we have to start from scratch. I'm Jason Pfeiffer, the editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine. Okay, have you ever met somebody and you're just casually like, oh, what do you do, right? You're just sort of making conversation. And then they just unleash the flood. They they tell you everything. They tell you every possible thing that they do. They just list off every every connection that they have, every idea that they've ever had. And they are clearly trying so hard to impress you because they fear and eh, maybe they're right that they're just not actually all that interesting. And then, by contrast, there are all these fascinating people out there completely fascinating people who do all sorts of interesting things, very inventive. And when you ask what they do, they don't really tell you. <laughs> or they, they, they say one thing. It, it sounds like this. John, can you introduce yourself? My name is John Beer. I'm the, the CEO and founder of Jack Taylor. And that's it. <laughs> that's all he said. Uh, John. I love people like this. I love people like John. I love John. John is an old friend of mine. I'll, I'll tell you more about that in a minute. But what I love about this kind of stuff is, you know, when somebody is just truly fascinating, when they have so many things going on, you know, they don't need to throw it in your face. They don't need to be flashy about it. That they, they know what they're doing. They're confident. They've got it. They've got it going on. So Jack Taylor, which he said is a PR company, a very, very successful PR company. But John is doing all sorts of other things. Watch me have to like drag it out of him. And you are also the owner, founder, whatever of many other things. I am. I uh, I'm the the co-owner of a whiskey company called Little Wolf. I'm the co-owner of a of a ghost town called Cerro Gordo. I teach sometimes at NYU. I advise a lot lately on a lot of brands, uh, some of which I work with and some of them I don't. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm a, the farm, the farm. Uh, so my wife and I just bought a, a farm in Hawaii, which will be called the Bear Family Farm. And uh, I'm so excited about it because we'll build brands based off of things that we grow and products that we create from it. And there's something about growing something and building a brand from that that is just uh, incredible. And also, it's just what I want to be around these days. See that? See how much work I had to do there? But here's the reason why I played all of that for you. Because for as successful as John is, it is very important for you to understand that this did not come naturally. This was not the path, exactly. John had to figure a lot out along the way. And when he started with that PR company, he did not really understand how to scale one business, let alone multiple businesses. To do that, he would have to understand at a really foundational level, 
his value, his skill sets, and how to build exceptional teams around him. And also how to have a really clear vision of how to serve people and how to scale the thing that he does. These are really hard things to learn. And John has learned them in a really powerful way. And he's so insightful about them that this is the reason I wanted to share this conversation with you, to show you how you take something and turn it into many things. And before we get into the conversation, I want to note that John has a podcast of his own. And in fact, we just brought it into the Entrepreneur Podcast Network. It is called One Day with John Beer. And in that show, he talks to exceptionally interesting people and digs into what makes them work kind of like how I'm going to be doing here today. So on this episode of Problem Solvers, we're going to have, I admit, a a, a little bit of an ambling conversation because there was so much that I wanted to talk to John about that I thought you would find valuable that we just kind of wove our way through his history, but with a real focus on the things that he learned that I think that you can take from no matter what it is that you are trying to scale. So today on Problem Solvers... How do you start with one thing and turn it into so many things that eh, you don't even lead with it in conversation? Coming up after the break. Every responsible employer, manager, and HR professional wants to create a supportive work culture where employees are empowered to reach their full potential. This also means being attuned to your employees' mental health needs. And that's why there's Ginger, a comprehensive mental health system for employees. Ginger is reinventing mental health care to provide immediate and on-demand personalized support for your employees. Here's how it works. Ginger brings immediate, high-quality mental health support right from a smartphone. With Ginger, members can connect with behavioral health coaches via text 24-7. Employees can get help with setting and working towards goals around anxiety, sleep, relationships, stress, and more. For more in-depth care, Ginger offers video therapy and psychiatry. Coaches, therapists, and psychiatrists work together to ensure that Ginger members get seamless care tailored to their lives. To learn more about how Ginger can support your employees' mental health, visit ginger.com slash problem solvers. That's ginger.com slash problem solvers. All right, we're back. Before we dive into the conversation with John, I'm just going to give one more detail about him, which I think is important and also is a really valuable tip for anybody who is looking to hire a PR person because that's the business that John is in. I met John originally in the context of PR. He was working PR for an event that I was speaking at and uh, and we connected backstage. And here's the thing. I very quickly learned that John values relationships more than transactions. If you want to find someone who's good in PR, or really, frankly, what am I talking about? Good in any kind of business, you have to value relationships over transactions. You have to be more interested in the person and getting to know the person than in getting something "quote unquote" out of them. And I, you know, I, I I met him, and you know, I was an editor at a magazine, and he was in PR. He could have pitched me a million things, but he didn't. Instead, I think we got a you know we got a drink because we just sort of hit it off, and then got another one and then got together many, many times, I think before he ever sent me any kind of pitch. And uh, and by that point, we were just actual friends. And you know what? That is how to do business. Because uh, if John ever does pitch me, I really pay attention. But he doesn't pitch me very often. Because again, it's really about relationships, not about transactions. And that is what matters the most. So, okay, you heard the setup, all the things that John is doing. And I had teased for you that it was a real learning experience getting to that point. So let's get into the conversation. That is a ending point 
for a journey thus far, which is to say all these things that you were doing, the way that you were balancing them all, the way that you were able to scale. But you start somewhere, and we're not going to do a whole long career retrospective. That would take sure. a very long time. But I do want to zero in on this one thing that is a central part of your evolution, which is learning what you can be and what you cannot be and how to surround yourself with the kinds of people who can help you take a company to where it needs to be. Talk to me about what you were like as an entrepreneur at the very beginning of Jack Taylor. Yes. Yeah, so I have an odd entrepreneurial journey from the perspective that I didn't have struggle in the traditional sense. Yes, when I started Jack Taylor, I had a few thousand dollars in the bank. And if I didn't make it, I'd probably have to go home to Montreal or something like that. Like that is true. But when I decided to leave the, the company that I had, I had a client that I thought would come on and then the company came on. And I think in the first year, we did over $300,000 in revenue and I had no overhead. And it grew from there. And that's not to say that there was not struggle. There was so much struggle, but it wasn't in terms of how am I going to pay these bills? It was in terms of like, I don't know anything about running a business and I'm not an operator and I have a very limited but very unique skill set. And the years that it took to actually evolve that skill set and bring on the awareness that I actually need people that have different complementary skill sets to really grow a business that I want to be a part of. What does it look like to grow a business where you are not bringing on people who have complementary skill sets? When you're not aware that that's a thing that you need to do, what did that look like? I'm naturally very disorganized. So it was disorganized. And at the same time, the output was very high. The deliverables that I would give clients were messy and sloppy. And you're limited, of course, in your growth when you're doing things like that and in the things that you offer, because it's only things that I was doing. And so the people that I would hire, I wasn't looking for a talent. I was looking for people with common sense that could be extensions of me and allow me to just work on more things, which is very limiting. You know, I hit that right. ceiling really quickly. You were not trying to expand a business. You were trying to just amplify yourself. Correct. And I thought that that's what expanding a business was. And that makes sense that you would think that because as I think about it, the first thing you told me was that you didn't have the traditional entrepreneur struggle, which is to say that you weren't worried the business was going to fall apart, go bankrupt. You started the thing and money started to come in. And that probably taught you a unfortunate lesson, which is that you've got it. You've got what it takes. There's no need to change. There's no need to adapt. Because why would you if the very first thing that you did succeeded by some metric and it took you a while to understand that that metric wasn't the only way to measure success? And I wonder if I'm Monday morning quarterbacking this a little bit because as we talk about it and I think about the journey, I always thought the shoe was going to drop. There's always a huge amount of fraud syndrome, especially when I actually was not a professional when I started the business. Now, I'd only been working in PR for two years. And the output was good, but everything else I didn't really know about. And I'd get on calls with these other PR people and I'd be like, man, they sound so good. They sound so polished. And of course they deliver nothing because that's standard, but they sounded amazing. And so I was like, I'm a fraud. And then there were many times over the years, even though we've grown every year, there were many times over the years because I was overspending and I was spending on the wrong things where like we've never missed payroll, but there has been stress over missing payroll many times. And I only really think about it 
now. But yes, in terms of actual money coming in, there shouldn't have been that stress. It was because I wasn't managing it properly. Do you think that's another symptom of early success that you were spending money in ways that weren't good for the business? And if you can detail some of those, I think that would be interesting because money came easy at first or easy enough, right? Even though when you look back on things, there's a phenomenon that happens in our brains called fading affect bias, where we forget the emotional experience of bad memories much faster than we forget the emotional experience of good memories. And this means that we tend to look back and more easily recall fond things. And so you're looking back now and you're remembering the good stuff and you're forgetting some of the bad stuff because the bad stuff doesn't need to inform you necessarily. But all that said, you were by fact in a situation where you started a company and money came in. And I wonder if you just started learning bad habits, both as a leader and also a spender because of it. Mm-hmm. I think that's true. And I think what happens is those things tend to snowball. And I'll give you an example. You know, not every brand gets to have PR. You need story inherent in the brand. And a lot of the most successful companies in the world forget that I don't want to work on them, but like I actually couldn't. I couldn't do it for Coca-Cola. There's not enough story inherent in Coca-Cola to attach it consistently to a news cycle. It's all marketing. And one, I'm not passionate about it. I'm not interested in it. But like in those days, I would have just taken clients that could have paid me and figured out a way to like try and provide value. And you can work as hard as you want to work on those clients. You're not really going to be able to provide value because I wasn't picky enough on the story. I was picky enough on whether they could afford me. And as valuable or even more than that is the people that you work with. With. You're going to have certain clients, even if they have a dope brand and they're helping people and there's an amazing amount of story that are just so connected to their company and their brand that they're going to expect more, 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 more. And there's a certain amount of that in PR that you have to accept. There's a certain amount of that that most founders are going to want more, more, more. There's a reasonable level of that. And so you have to be able to say to people, hey, this is not okay and this is not in line with something that's reasonable. And so in those days, I would just take it and put myself through the stress of it. Whereas now I spot it early and I either don't work with those brands or I stop working with them. I manage money for stress really well now. I didn't do it back then. So I want to respond to two points, and I think I'll just do them at the same time so that I don't forget. Point number one is about what you're talking about with PR is so important, first of all, for any service-based business, which is to say that I hear and I've heard so many times that one of the great turning points of anyone running a service-based business is appreciating who their client is and who their client isn't and like firing the bad clients. Because early on, you take on anybody and you discover that that actually is not a good way to grow a business. And so here you are observing that. And by virtue of that, you are creating a more sustainable business. At the very beginning, you're describing making a bunch of money. But if you look back at where that money came from, that may have been unsustainable, right? Because you were serving clients who you couldn't do a good job with because they didn't have a great story. They were impossible to work with. Whatever the reason, they'll pay you once, maybe they'll pay you twice. But that isn't a long-lasting relationship and it's probably not going to build a body of work that you can show others. So it means that there's this early success that's financially rewarding, but only down the line do you realize that acting like that is not actually financially sustainable. So there's one thing which maybe you want to respond to, but mm -hmm. I'm just going to add the other, which is that as a guy who hears from publicists all the time, boy, can I tell when a publicist just takes on any client because mm -hmm. they are reaching out to me about stuff that is completely irrelevant to me and that doesn't sound very interesting 
And I think to myself, boy, these people have signed themselves up for an impossible challenge. And they probably have not done any kind of client management whatsoever where they haven't told the client what the limitations are or what to expect or what not to expect. They've probably promised the world and they are not going to be able to deliver on it. And it's not my problem, but I'm certainly not going to be helping them. And so the people who I respect the most in this field, and you are at the top of that list, are people who are so selective about who they work with so that if I hear from them, first of all, I don't hear from them all the time because they're not pitching me every damn client and every damn thing that they have because they are managing their clients. But when I do hear from them, I know it's because there's likely to be quality there. They are spending the time to understand the publications and they are also being very selective about their clients and therefore they are increasing their hit rate and thus they are better at their jobs. Those are two very, very different things, but I'm going to throw them back at you. Yeah. The thing with the taking the money and brands that aren't really going to move the company and, and your purpose forward, that actually slows your growth down. Like if I was abundant and thinking, hey, like I can bring in this business, which on that level, I was on some level, but then brands would be paying me and I would continue doing it. And it would take away my focus from actually building towards other brands that I could actually grow with. And mm-hmm. so that slowed me down probably for a couple of years. And then the other part of that is if you don't have story, you're going to cycle through those clients. You're not going to be able to. And then you, you end up playing this game, which is maybe a little inside baseball for your audience. But basically what a lot of PR people do, as you're aware, is they'll make a list, often computer generated, and they'll send the same thing, which is why you probably get a lot of dear editor or email yep, sure directed to the editor-in-chief of Inc. Magazine. And, also get and, that. You know, and they send the same email and they blast it out. And so it's like, do you really want to spend your life? Like, this is your life. This is your time on the planet. Sending out an email completely untargeted to a thousand people and hoping that one person responds positively to it and you can move that forward? Or do you want to send it to four people or one person and actually be like, hey, I read your stuff. This is a brand that I think is relevant to you because of blah, 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 blah. Is this interesting? And if so, we can start talking and we can give you this or that. And I will say that we only do that. And we also only work with brand that has deep, deep story that is helping people. And I say, and I'll stop talking in a moment because I tend to tangent, but whenever I work with brands, I say like, we end up working a lot in wellness, but really it's wellness in the broad sense. It's products that help people. And part of the reason for that is that I want to spend my time working on on this planet, working on things that I believe in. But actually, I'm not all bleeding heart. That's a business decision. If there's a product that is helping people, that means there's a consumer for it. If it's solving a problem, there's a consumer for it. And if there's a consumer, that company is going to be very successful, potentially, as long as it's not mismanaged and all of that. And we can apply it to not just a niche news cycle, but a mainstream news cycle because it's solving a bigger problem, which is great. So how we work with our business now is I try and invest personally in all of my clients and not as a sweat equity thing. We try and write them checks. And it's not necessary for them to take it, although often they do. It's necessary for me to want to write it. And if I don't want to give them my money, I probably don't want to work with them badly enough. And so that's how we run our business now. And it's been really beneficial for us. All right. So now let's talk about the middle of that. 
We spent some time talking about all the mistakes made early, and now you're giving a glimpse of a very different organization, one where you understand how to scale, how to serve clients, how to filter for the clients that you not only want to work with, but can bring a lot of value to. And how did you transition from one version of yourself as a leader to another? So many years of evolving, I think, as a slow learning CEO and as a human being. And I realized at some point that there was a real ceiling to what I was working on, that I could only grow with a brand to a certain degree. And at some point, they're going to want a whole bunch of other things. They're not just going to want John Beer's creativity and big picture strategy with really messy, but like strong output. And I realized how disorganized I am as a person and I need to be really organized. I don't have inventory in the traditional sense. My inventory is the quality of the people that can still extend me, but actually build beyond skill sets that I have. And so organization was first. I needed to be insanely organized. We needed to have like almost a military, not almost, we have like a platoon system of how we work with people and we have operations people and we have more people working on smaller teams than any other agency on the planet and we pitch a lot less. We pitch less than any other agency and our output is higher and the services that we offer are more broad. We incubate, we help with design, we help with a whole bunch of things that aren't traditional PR things to the point where we're going to be dropping that. But I needed to realize that, hey, these clients are outgrowing me fairly quickly, these brands are outgrowing me and either I need to step up my game or I'm going to be playing in this startup area forever. And by the way, it's a bad place to play because let's say I was charging clients a few thousand dollars a month in the early days. The clients that I was attracting, that few thousand dollars was their lifeline. It was everything. Whereas now if I'm working with billion dollar brands, we're less of a line item. We're very, very important. It's very, but like that cash is not going to make the difference on whether or not they buy inventory or hire a deeper team or anything like that, which of course takes some of that pressure off. So what you're saying reminds me a bit of a story that I aired on this show, oh, I don't know, a couple of years ago. And it came from this guy, Ben Chestnut, who is the co-founder or maybe founder and CEO of MailChimp. And he said that MailChimp started as this small, scrappy company, and he loved its adventurousness. And he would sit in a conference room with his other team members, and they would drink coffee, and they would spitball ideas, and who knew where the company would go? Who knew? And then the thing grew and grew and grew and grew. And he maintained that level of scrappiness and disorganization. And then came this time where he was standing in front of an auditorium, certainly a large group of people, including many new hires who he had never really met because his company had grown to the point where he doesn't have the time to build a personal relationship with everyone who works at this company. And they are asking him for plans and for roadmaps and for structure. And, and he doesn't have it. And he's trying to communicate, we're scrappy. We're just, we're fun. We're having fun here. We're building this together. And he could see that the old employees understood this because they had been with him at this time. But everyone that he had hired after a certain moment in time in this company's growth had no idea what he was talking about. And they were very frustrated because they had signed on for a company that knew what the hell it was doing. And they're looking at a leader who seems to enjoy not knowing what the hell he was doing. And then afterwards, one of his executives sat him down. It was basically like, you need to buck it up. 
Like you need to change. And it sent him on a journey to reevaluate himself as a leader and then surround himself, much like you were describing, with people who can fill in all the things that he realized were missing. And as a result, of course, built this thriving company that just sold for however many gobs and gobs of money. And so I wonder from you if there was a particular breaking point where you realized that your clients were outgrowing you and that something needed to change. And what, to the best that you can remember, was the first thing that you realized the company needed to fix and how to fix it? Like you had said, disorganization. How do you go about doing that? Did you find a good operating officer? Take yeah. me to the moment where you said, all right, it's time to bust out the toolbox and like start fixing things. It's such a good question. And I wish I had an answer that made me seem smarter. But <laughs> first of all, with any business, of course you want to keep your scrappiness. You want to keep the thing that makes you great. But unless you're innovating, because no market stays the same either. So not only do you have to grow and evolve, but like the market around you is growing and evolving. So if you're keeping this like scrappy ethos and you're not doing all the other things that are going to help you grow within your industry, like you're going to fall behind inevitably. And my industry changes drastically and we kind of occupy a very unique spot in it, but I wouldn't have changed it if I wasn't forced to. And what happened was I had an operator that I had hired as my first hire who was like, a young kid used to get me like sandwiches. He put together our pool table the first day in the office. And then he was amazing. And he grew into this jack of all trades, really, really good at almost everything. But all the skill sets that he had, he had either picked up on the job or he had learned from me. And I never would have evolved beyond it if he wasn't like, he came to me one day and he's like, I was offered my dream job. And I also, in that time, I think I like had started being less interested in the business too. Like it just started being a little monotonous to me. And I just was like sick of building other people's brands. Like this is a payday for me on some level. And I stopped really investing my, myself in it anyway, but he took this job. Instantly, I was like, do I close the business? What do I do? Like, do I continue to go? I don't know how to operate this business. I haven't done it in seven years. And I was terrible at it. And so I brought on someone who I'd been working with as a consultant for a while. Her name's Heather. She's president of our company now. And she really organized. And she was like, you're a mess, but our clients are amazing. And I had some really good clients even at that time. And so then she hired people that she had worked with and other operators. And I would weigh in on big picture strategy and do all the new business stuff. And she would organize all of it and like organize the teams and have HR and things that we just never had before. But unless I was forced to do it, literally the company would have gone out of business if it was left to me, because now our clients like almost had evolved way beyond what I was capable of. And now the person that was even doing it, that was still limited because he had learned everything he had known from me, but was naturally very good at it was gone. So it was like, even though we still had good clients at that point, it's probably like within six months of like, hey, maybe I should do the ghost town full time or focus on some of these other businesses or something like that. We're going to take a quick break and then come back with more conversation with John Beer. Hey, everyone, it's Adam DeGrade from the David versus Goliath podcast, a brand new podcast dedicated to helping small business owners everywhere dominate and crush it in their market. On the David versus Goliath podcast, we interview the most successful, energetic, and informative entrepreneurs in their respective space. There you can learn the secrets and the tips that they've used to grow and succeed in their market. David versus Goliath podcast is completely dedicated to helping you with your plans, 
your people, your technology, your process, and the courage it takes to slay that giant and win more business in your market. On the DVG Podcast, you'll get inspiration, education, and activation. I'm your host, Adam DeGrade. Watch us on YouTube, Spotify, Rumble, or listen to us on any podcast application you can imagine. That's the David versus Goliath podcast. We'll see you there. All right, we're back and picking up where we left off. That's a wonderful story because it is a moment in which perhaps for the first time, I say with a question mark, you can answer, but the way that you just described it, it sounds like for the first time, you got to see the power of bringing in talent that you don't have yourself. You had brought in talent that you did have, or you had brought in someone who you could then teach. And so you were still throughout that whole time seeing only inside the limitations of what you were able to build yourself. And this was the moment that you're describing when you bring somebody from outside and they come in and they do something that you can't do and it is transformative. And I imagine that at that point you say, oh, well, I need more of that. I need to figure out how to get even more people who can identify even more opportunities and start to surround myself, not with people who just do what I do, but with people who do what I don't do. Totally. And so instantly what happened, first of all, I work in a very stressful industry. People pay me a lot of money to do my best, essentially. They're like, well, what are you going to get? I'm like, I don't know. I haven't done it yet. But this is what we did last month. And this is where we think we should focus. And that's a tough way to make a living regardless. But it was always very high stress. And now with a deep team that I'm so confident in, still high stress, but a lot a lot less stressful. And so if I was, and I'll say it, I was greedy because I didn't really see the upside and and I wasn't into the business at that point. And so now with this team, I'm the least greedy. I, Mm -hmm. I want to find the best people wherever they are and add them to our team and, and pay them more money and make them make their lives as easy as possible by not overworking them, by putting them on really deep teams, by letting them, you know, really weigh in on how they want to do the business. Then I focus. And how did it take me almost 10 years to figure this out? But and we've been in business for 12. Now I can focus on the things that I'm really, really good at. And I have a unique gift. I can understand strategy, big picture, not implement, big picture, right away. You can give me a PR problem and I will be able to give you what is the solution. And by the way, there's usually one right answer. I'm like, this is the best way. And they're like, well, this, 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 and this. Okay. I'm like, okay, well, how about this? How about this? How about this? And then other people, and then I can bring on the business. I can advise big picture on the growth and other people that know more than me can talk about how do we actually implement that? How do we scale that? How do we offer different services that people want? How do we keep up with the market in an industry that is relying less on traditional media or more on creators? Or how do we globalize without actually like overtaxing ourselves? I know that we have to do these things. I'm not the person to do them. So I'm like, I can bring up the bullet point and then we defer to all these amazing people that are doing it. And so as a result, I'm super excited to be part of this business. I wake up really loving what I do as opposed to just trying to move from A to B and cash a paycheck. And and it's a drastically different working experience. 
Do you feel like you still today have blind spots, which is to say, even though you have completely transformed the way that you think about the business and now the problem would be completely different, right? Back in the beginning, it was that you didn't know you needed to fill in gaps. Now you do, which is why you are so focused on talent. And whenever we've talked about your business, it always jumps out to me how much you talk about talent and how much you value your team and how much you think of your team as the driver of success. So you know that talent fills gaps and that you need to be hiring for the things that you don't already do. So I wonder how you now think about it as you grow and the world changes and clients need new things and the media environment changes. How are you making sure that you're aware of where new gaps occur and how to fill that with new talent? Yeah. So also really good. So I have regular sessions with my management team and I'll say, well, this is something that I've been thinking of. What do you guys think? And they're all people with drastically different skill sets than me. And it'll be something like we're thinking about, well, how to scale the business now near medium long term. And we limit the clients we work with. And we, like we say, we always trade less stress for less money, if that's a way of saying it. I won't just take on clients that are going to unstabilize the entire team because that becomes just not a sustainable way to run a business. And so I'm cool with like slow, sustainable growth. But on the other side of that, I'm not just going to say, hey, I want to scale XYZ in 2022, because what if we can find ways to innovatively bring on deeper teams and deeper skill sets and actually bring on more money while managing stress? And what things do we need to do to do that? What do you think? And have a conversation around it. And then again, hire to those weaknesses. But as long as I crowdsource it, and I don't think I have all the answers. I don't come into this being like, this is my business. This is our business. And everybody is here because they serve a real essential purpose. There's no fluff. And that seems to work and solve all that. But of course, there's blind spots. I uncover them all the time. John, I'm going to conclude here because we could talk about this forever, but my mission with Problem Solvers is to keep things as short as I can. So let me ask you to end with a piece of advice for people who maybe are in the middle of the journey that you have described here. Because I imagine that there are a lot of people who feel like they're beyond the part where they are just starting out and they don't know what they're doing, but they wonder where they are in the journey and at what point they need to start transforming and whether they have done a good enough job transforming, whether they are meeting that moment, whether or not they have done a full accounting of the kind of leader that they are and the kind of business that they've built and what needs to be fixed next. As you think back to how you had to reevaluate what you do and how you do it, was there some lesson, some takeaway, some thought, some test you put yourself through, something that you think is worth anybody kind of thinking through themselves as they finish hearing us talk? Yeah, that's a big question. And I think there's not an easy answer to it. The reason for that is that growing up, my goal, it was important in my family and a lot of our families to be successful in the traditional sense, which is a very external thing. And so I was constantly in the early days just trying to live up to that expectation, which was not my own. It was implanted in me when I was a kid and I didn't really ever think about, well, what do you want? And so I faked it till I made it and I focused on the bottom line and I spent disproportionately on things that weren't actually helping to achieve that purpose because it scratched an, an itch with my ego or something like that. And I think really kind of sitting with yourself and saying like, 
what actually do I want? What actually makes me happy? And not in the like, obviously you have to pay bills. I'm not one of these people that says you should just follow your dreams because your dreams might not be something that can actually feed you. And you need to factor in that reality, at least in the short term. But I think actually sit with yourself. And I never did one time. What do you really want? What really excites you? What is for, to add a woo-woo term, like what is your sole purpose? And what elements of what you're doing right now are helping you realize that? And I never thought about that, I don't think for a second, because I was too busy trying to be successful in the traditional sense. And now you think about that. I bought a farm in Hawaii and I'm, you know, like, yes. And I'm blessed that I learned all these things where now I feel confident to be able to build that brand. But yeah, I want to be around nature and my family and growing things and entrepreneurship based on the skills that I have. And I want to continue growing my business with brands that I'm obsessed with. John, thanks so much for being so open about your own journey and challenges, because I think it really helps make success a lot more understandable. Yeah, you're welcome. It's an honor to be on the podcast. I'm a regular consumer of it. So this is very exciting for me. Oh, thanks. Oh, hey, one other thing, which I'll use this because as you know, I kind of cut things up because we are doing this because of your podcast. Describe your podcast to me. So my podcast is called The One Day Podcast with me, your host, Papa Bear, aka John Beer. That's often how I started off. But I have a lot of really interesting people in my life and I like talking to interesting people. And I'm really grateful that you guys added it to the Entrepreneur Network. And I have no choice to be an entrepreneur because I'm unhirable in any traditional way. But I do make a good entrepreneur, although most of the episodes, entrepreneur flows into it, but it's not about entrepreneurship. I think on some levels. It's about interesting people living their best life. And I think that is the through line between my guests. But I just like talking to people that are putting themselves out there and doing interesting things that they believe in. And it tends to make for good conversation, I think. Perfect. And that's our episode. I would love to hear what you think and maybe even about a problem that you solved. You can find me at my website, jasonpfeiffer.com. J-A-S-O-N-F-E-I-F-E-R.com. Also, I have some more useful stuff for you. I write a newsletter about how to future-proof yourself and become more adaptable and optimistic. I would love for you to sign up. It is at jasonpfeiffer.bulletin.com. Also, check out my other podcast. It's called Build for Tomorrow. In each episode, I take on some belief that we have that holds us back from progress and show you why it is not as bad as you think. Problem Solvers is a production of Entrepreneur Media and comes out every Monday morning, so make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss an episode. Thanks to Deepa Shah for production. My name is Jason Pfeiffer. See you next week.